I'm Damian Bulwa, Managing Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, we've got two stories. We're going to start with the vaccine coming to San Francisco, and then later, reporter Annie Weinstein will be here. She's going to talk about the psychology behind defiance of pandemic rules. First up, on Monday, as the pandemic raged around the country with deaths crossing the 300,000 mark, five Los Angeles healthcare workers were the first people in California to be immunized. Meanwhile, San Francisco also received one of those early shipments. Immunizations are set to begin on Tuesday. Here to talk about this historic day and about what will be important in the days ahead is health reporter Aaron Alday. Welcome back, Aaron. Thanks again. Thanks for having me again, Damien. It's a real pleasure to be here today. All right, Aaron. So we are talking on Monday night. I know a very busy day for you and a big one in the in the pandemic. What happened? Right. So today, I mean, the big news of the day is we actually have vaccine, coronavirus vaccine in people's arms today. We actually had, you know, the first people, the first five people in California get the shots. Um, We actually have vaccines that are in public health hands in San Francisco. Um, And the very first San Franciscans will be vaccinated first thing Tuesday morning as far, you know, that's that's the plan anyway. So this is just incredible. I mean, in a way, it feels like we've been obviously waiting for this for for months. Um, You know, we've been talking about it for a long time. But if you kind of look at how fast things have moved, we haven't even had this virus, you know, in existence in humans for, you know, even a year, really. And and we're already at the point of vaccinating people. It's just it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. And this is going to be a truly historic um, immunization on a on a national and even a global level. Yeah, it's something we've been all waiting for, Aaron, but it, it comes during this surge which has been so bad, seems to get worse every day. Um, as we said, deaths crossing the 300,000 mark. What? How do you sort of align the two? Um, are we going to see any relief uh, in the surge from the vaccinations? I mean, we won't we won't see any relief in the surge from the vaccinations, um, just to put that out there. I will say that the vaccinations will help in the sense that because they'll be going to our healthcare providers first, um, you know, that's going to be presumably a lot of reassurance for for those folks, those those frontline workers who are really most at risk right there, you know, treating treating the people, the COVID-19 patients. Um, so that's, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big kind of weight off of their shoulders to be able to have that protection as we enter this really horrific period or as we continue through this horrific period of the pandemic. But as far as kind of controlling the cases now, no, it won't it won't help at all. And we are amidst, you know, this really outrageous surge. Um, as you pointed out, we, we crossed 300,000 deaths, which is just really hard to put your mind around um how many how many deaths that is it's more than in all of world war ii um you know these are these are massive numbers of of people who have died and we're still seeing really big death tolls um not just nationally but you know in california we're seeing more than 150 deaths a day in california now and it's it that's going to get worse you know we're still seeing just kind of the start of those deaths kind of picking up. So that's, that's going to get worse over the coming weeks. Um, And we're still, you know, public health officials are still really, really concerned about the pressure that's being placed on, on our hospitals, and especially our intensive care units, um, with all these patients coming in and the the cases continuing to climb. And something you've written a lot about, we've talked about is guarding against complacency. And in this time, when people are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel, and the surge is going on, how do we do that? Well, I think one of the key messages to people is because we are in this last sort of, 
you know, we need to really buckle down. We, we really can see the finish line here. I hate to use all these cliches, but, you know, for the first time, we can really see like where this thing might end, you know, and we have we literally have a vaccine in hands. We have people that are getting vaccinated right now. And so the messaging is hold on, you know, like really, this is more than ever a time to be careful and to be cautious because nobody wants to be that person that gets the coronavirus and spreads it to an at-risk family or friend or or relative um, who then dies of this when we have a vaccine, right? Like we're going to start giving it to people widespread, you know, in a matter of a month or two. And if we can just sort of like protect ourselves and not get infected right now, you know, that would that would just be amazing. I mean, that's what we should be doing. It would just be, I guess, to turn around, it would just be awful to be kind of one of those people who succumbs to this just when there's actually this this kind of light, this hope at the, you know, right ahead of us. One person you describe is Kim Taylor. She's an ER nurse who is one of the first people to be vaccinated in Los Angeles. I think the governor uh, was alongside and was watching. She then said, help is on the way and 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 sort of spoke to the public. Aaron, why is this happening sometimes publicly? Why have people like Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates said they they are open to getting vaccinated on camera? Why is this happening? Well, I mean, we definitely need to, you know, confront head on this 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 concept of vaccine hesitancy. Um, you know, the United States has a long kind of history with with people being, you know, having having kind of hesitancy, even being formally against vaccinations. Um, and obviously, key to ending this pandemic is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, we need to get people on board. We need to have people trust this vaccine. And that's especially true because this has been a very quick process. It's been very politicized at points. Um, so there's, you know, people understandably have a lot of questions. They have a lot of doubts. I've even talked to healthcare workers who have some concerns about it. You know, there's just understandably there is just a lot of, you know, people out there not sure if they want to get this or not. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of, you know, public public facing people saying we need to we need to show people I trust this you know this this woman today this nurse Kim Taylor saying you know I'm a healthcare provider I'm on the front lines like I trust this I mean you she was on live TV you kind of could watch her with the mask on you know getting this shot in her arm and and she's you know she's fine with it just kind of en- endured that like normal and then you know talked of it after as you know this was no big deal this was just I mean she recognized the historic moment of this but also was just very much, you know, this is, I feel very comfortable with this. She clearly, you know, was was just fine with it. And I think the more we can kind of get that kind of reaction, get people out there, out there publicly, you know, taking this, hopefully that just sort of breeds, um, you know, public reassurance. It makes people comfortable with it and even eager to get it as, as we have more of this vaccine rolling out, because that is going to become just so critical as time goes by. Aaron, I know that you and I are also willing, if uh, if it would help, to get vaccinated on camera, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so tell us what this looks like moving forward. Um, tomorrow will be the first day in San Francisco, but um, what happens in the days to come? What ha- this is the Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine, but what about the Moderna vaccine? What, where do we where do we go from here? Yeah, it's going to be. Um, 
kind of a, a quick moving, you know, set of dominoes, I think, over the next uh, few weeks. Basically, I think we're going to see all of the counties start start doing these these vaccinations all this week, you know, kind of one after another. Um, and it's it is mostly going to be hospital workers at first. Some places are focusing on the skilled nursing facilities so nursing home residents and staff in this first round. I mean, very, very first round. As you said, the Moderna uh, vaccine goes up for FDA approval later this week. Most people expect that that will be happening. Um, Governor Newsom said today that he hopes to get several hundred thousand uh, doses of that vaccine as early as next week. So that's just going to add to the load. He, you know, Governor Newsom said today that he is planning for more than two million total doses in California by the end of the year, which is what, two weeks from now. So, you know, we're going to be having presumably a lot of vaccine kind of getting dumped in California uh, before the end of the year over the next few weeks, which is just really exciting. So we're going to see a lot of that. But again, most of this is going to be in, you know, very, very specific places, because even though that is a lot of doses, we're going to run through that real fast with these healthcare workers, and especially with these these nursing home residents and staff. And keep in mind also that everybody needs two doses. So, you know, these are, these are all just first round doses in three weeks, all of these people will need to get a second dose to get full effectiveness. All right. So still a long way to go, uh, Aaron. Thank you. And that means we'll be talking to you again soon, I hope. Absolutely. It's going to be definitely a long haul still. All right. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to have an interview with Annie Weinstein of The Chronicle. She's been talking to doctors and psychologists and others about why people are getting fatigue and some defiance against pandemic rules. Fifth admission right after this. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bolwa, and I'm joined now by Annie Weinstein, another reporter at the Chronicle who's been covering the pandemic. And Annie, you have a really fascinating story about the backlash to these new guidelines, these stricter guidelines that have come with the latest surge. Um, first of all, can you describe some of the ways that we're seeing this play out? Um, are we seeing it at restaurants? Are we seeing it uh, from business owners? How are people sort of showing that they're fighting back against the new rules? Yeah, um, you know, I think. Well, it's important to mention that the backlash has been building pretty much throughout the course of the last nine months. Um, but in the last week or so, we're already seeing people, um, you know, ignoring guidelines. And, and by that, I mean, not changing their behavior at all in terms of, you know, gatherings. Um, we're also seeing restaurants. Um, you know, continuing to stay open. Um, there were a couple of interesting stories in the Chronicle that kind of talked about some of the, you know, uh, small business owners and restaurant owners who have decided just to go ahead with it for also, you know, for several reasons, um, not the least being just their anger and frustration. But I think in general, sort of anywhere around the Bay Area in California, to some extent, we're seeing a lot of people adamant in their concerns that these restrictions are backed by limited data or in some cases, no data at all. And so without those kinds of justifications that are really clear, I think it's become much easier for people to just ignore them altogether. Yeah, it's really fascinating what you write about it, the psychology of the backlash. And and, and you mentioned um, the playground 
ban. People got angry about that and, and, and a lot because there wasn't good information. Um, and then um, our colleague Justin Phillips has written about how Danville restaurant owners have, a lot of them stayed open despite the new rules. So so talk to us about what you found. You talked to experts who explained some of the reasons why uh, this latest shutdown has been received this way. What, what are the experts saying? So the, there's a lot of, I guess, dynamics or factors behind why this latest shutdown has been kind of so um, kind of unmoving in a way. And and I think the first thing is is just the confusion. It's something that a lot, you know, pretty much every expert I spoke to has mentioned, which is just, I mean, the confusion beginning in the beginning or beginning at the kind of start of the pandemic, where there just wasn't a national strategy, there wasn't a unification at all. State officials are saying one thing, county officials are saying something else, sheriffs are saying they're not going to enforce any of those things. So this kind of breakdown of like a unified strategy, I think, can can lead to, you know, these guidelines just being murky sort of wherever you go. And the other part is then the the reasons uh, people are, you know, like in the playground example, they're, I think, really desiring um, a fair amount of transparency um, around these guidelines. And I think people have kind of called for that for a while. They're, they've asked to see the data. They've asked to see the research that shows that, you know, that points to reasons why some things are shut down and other things aren't shut down, why tennis is shut down, but playgrounds or tennis wasn't, but playgrounds were. So I think it's been a challenge on both ends for there to be a a fair amount of transparency. And then I think there's also the dynamic of the sort of mounting erosion of trust. Um, You know, I think everyone is quite familiar by this point with the sort of French laundry drama um, and just, you know, other other officials in, in power kind of skirting their own, you know, not heeding their own guidelines. Um, and besides that being just sort of a blatant kind of example of uh, the, the hypocrisy that is allotted to, you know, people in power, I think it's also, it also signals to people that, um, well, if officials aren't taking these rules seriously, they must not think it's that big of a deal. And so maybe I shouldn't either. Um, and I think the last piece, which is related, is the sort of larger political backdrop um, that this pandemic has become really a flashpoint for how people identify themselves politically. Yeah. Now, Annie, you write about something called motivation cognition, and, and it's fascinating. You say it de- describes a pattern in human thinking where often people don't start with the facts and argue toward a conclusion but rather start with the conclusion and find facts to support it. And this is something that, um, you know, so this is something that uh, Gaurav Suri, who's a professor of psychology and a neuroscientist at San Francisco State, um, pointed out as kind of one of the one of one of the major factors at play in why it's been so hard for for us to get on the same page um, just about the pandemic, about very simple things related to the virus. And I think it goes back to what I was just saying about this, that it's become a flashpoint for a kind of political tribalism. And so it makes this impulse, um, the the motivation or, um, you know, the the motivation around a certain narrative. And maybe in this case that the pandemic is not something to fear, um, that it is something that will pass quickly or that it's a hoax um, stronger than any kind of raw, you know, raw information pointing to the opposite. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he talks about how our divisions have deepened so considerably that, that now there's just so much more at stake on the motivation side rather than on the cognition side. And if our kind of political tribe pushes us to hold certain views, we're very likely to hold those views and to cherry pick, to find, to kind of dig for facts that support those views. Cherry picking does seem to have a big impact on this because we all have our own sort of news sources and social feeds and communities, and it's not hard to find the evidence that you think will explain your point of view. I, I, I have, you know, I have uh, friends who who send me something, and if if I respond with some other um, with with something different, you know, they go and they find something even stronger to send to me that that proves their point. Right, and there's the aspect too of you know this kind of conspiratorial thinking too. So like when we talk about in the very beginning of the pandemic, when there were uh, sort of suggestions made, recommendations made against people wearing masks um, by, you know, the CDC, it's something that I think a lot of people kind of continue to glom onto as as a justification for not wearing masks nine months into the pandemic, where, whereas, you know, that was made more so to just, it wasn't outlined in a transparent way, but I think people understand that people just didn't want, that officials didn't want people to stockpile masks and they needed to save them for healthcare workers. And so I think that's just one of the examples where, like you said, those two things are true in some way, but they're kind of, they've kind of been pushed together in a way that's a little bit warped. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was something that I that I think we've all seen in our own lives, uh, a factor where you call it the intuitive statistician, where we all seem to be making assessments based on things that have personally happened to us rather than the cumulative science that's out there. Um, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I played basketball once and I didn't get the coronavirus. So it obviously, obviously basketball is okay. Um, wh- what are the experts saying about that? I mean, I think to me, that feels like the the kind of most potent factor that's at play. And it's it's really hard to to kind of find a way out of because it's just so subconscious and it's something that we're so used to doing. But right, I mean, essentially the intuitive statistician in each of that, us. So say, you know, we're not even talking now about data from any kind of study, but we're more so, you know, at this point, kind of nine months again into the pandemic, I think all of us again, have subconsciously already made conclusions and predictions based on sort of our very limited slice of local data or our own kind of data. So, you know, if we've been, like you said, playing basketball and nothing bad happened or even more extreme, we've gone and visited family for Thanksgiving and nothing happened. It can be very hard to connect our own experience, whether that's like luck or chance or just, you know, something else to kind of the larger implication of like, what happens if, you know, thousands of people do this? What happens if hundreds of thousands of people do this? And to sort of see like our own experience as not representative of, you know, what we're seeing in in data or reflected in data. Um, So it's something that we're really, it's really hardwired in us. And kind of the more that our experience doesn't reflect what we see in the news, the more kind of dissonance builds. And we're very good at this point at resolving that cognitive dissonance. All right, Annie, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to my guests today, Chronicle staff writers Aaron Alday and Annie Weinstein. 
to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.